This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In January of 1974, the three astronauts aboard the U.S. space station Skylab 4 were quickly running out of steam. They had spent the duration of their mission trying to keep up a grueling work pace set by NASA. Being confined to a small bubble in outer space didn't mean a lack of things to do. Quite the contrary. Every day, the astronauts faced a barrage of tasks, ranging from large-scale to minutiae. The crew was to observe the comet Kohotek and carry out a series of spacewalks. In between all of this, gear waited to be loaded and moved. Any leftover seconds were dedicated to the astronauts meticulously documenting their diet, exercise routines, and physical health. The work schedule for the barely four-month mission amounted to a total of 6,051 hours for three people. Having a day off to relax hadn't struck the crew as something they should have pre-negotiated. Yet here they were, with more work piling up and their last shreds of enthusiasm evaporating. A little over a month into their journey, the three were fed up. They were taking a day off. This strike, as some called it, wasn't unreasonable. The crew had done their utmost to keep stride up to this point, and in the following days, they resumed their usual schedule, albeit at a slightly less aggressive speed. Still, NASA appeared to have little sympathy, and though it was never explicitly declared, the message from NASA became exceedingly clear. The Skylab 4 crew would never fly to orbit again. They had been grounded from all future missions. This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original, a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear proving that there's always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This season, we're covering the dark side of space. While the quest to put a man on the moon and explore the great beyond has always been a trophy on the shelves of U.S. history, we're digging just a little deeper into what really happened to get there. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. Last week, we learned about the ethics of the space race, including animal testing and the exclusion of women and minorities from astronaut programs. This week, we'll be breaking down health hazards, starting with the glue that holds an astronaut together, their mental health. If the lack of priority for psychological care seems unsettling, just wait until we get to the physical changes that barrage the human body in space. Tissue, organ functions, and even cells themselves start to alter and break down. Mankind may have been destined for space, but were we meant to keep going there? And more importantly, can the human body and psyche be contorted in order to stay there? We spoke last week about the extreme measures that both the U.S. and other countries have taken to test space travel. Before humans ever ventured into the ether, animals were sent into orbit to test whether or not a human might survive. Though frightening and inhumane, these methods were deemed necessary to space exploration and innovation. Space was a place for hopeful, curious minds, where the best and the brightest pooled their brain power. It was a manifestation of dreams. In reality, the dogged fortitude necessary to get to space and stay calm once there was more akin to preparing for solitary confinement or war. Perhaps one of the earliest missteps in the space race was buttering it in the allure of glory. We were ready to jump feet first into the unknown rather than judiciously step forward one foot at a time. The old saying, attitude is everything, proves none more true than in space. Missions can range from months to even years. Thus, having individuals who are of steady mental constitution is of utter importance. It seems particularly ironic, then, that an astronaut's cornerstone, their composure, is also the least studied and least understood by NASA. For decades after its founding in 1958, the agency seemed adamant to chart its own course, which was one it decided needn't be bogged down with the nitty-gritty of mental health. A 2001 report by the U.S. Institute of Medicine on recommendations for the agency bluntly stated, Little is known about the psychological capacity of humans to withstand the stresses of long-duration space travel. But what is known is ominous. It went on to warn that a slew of disruptions for astronauts should be taken into account, including increased fatigue and sleep deprivation. These factors could then pave the way for varying degrees of depression, contentious relationships between crew members, or with ground control, and increased anxiety and irritability. With mental health being a critical component to missions, one would think NASA would take this advice seriously to make sure its astronauts were equipped with psychological resources. Not so.
Even after the Skylab incident in the mid-70s, over 20 years went by before NASA itself admitted it could do better. A 1998 report by the agency said that after nearly 30 years of aeronautics development, it was wary that it didn't have enough data on the most pressing psychological issues affecting its flight crews. It did admit, though, that a majority of scientists deemed these issues a limiting factor in the human exploration of the universe. Meaning, we may be shooting ourselves in the foot here, gang. Until this point, NASA mostly tasked its flight surgeons, board surgeons trained in aerospace medicine, with also sussing out potential psychological issues. If the Skylab 4 incident was any indication, the agency's practice of allowing mental health to take the back seat to physical aptitude was not serving either side. Besides which, leaving the medical, physical, and behavioral monitoring to just one person is always wildly problematic. For one, mental health is nuanced and varies based on the person. It can ebb and flow depending on environmental stressors, and all the while, personal trauma can lie dormant or go undiagnosed for years. This created a particularly bad set of circumstances for an astronaut, considering the range of psychological problems that can be triggered by an intense situation. Like, say, launching into outer space at nearly 18,000 miles per hour. According to Dr. Patricia Santi, a Michigan psychiatrist and former NASA flight surgeon, not taking enough time to parse through an astronaut's psychological strengths and weaknesses can pose a huge problem. Namely, a potential mental crisis could be catastrophic to a mission. By the time a breakdown occurs in space, it's too late. Take, for example, the break-off effect. It's a phenomenon that was first observed in early fighter jet flyers after World War II. In 1957, a study was published by Dr. Bryant Clark and Captain Ashton Grabeel. It detailed how some Navy and Marine pilots experienced a feeling of physical and mental separation from Earth while flying at high altitudes. The combination of desaturated oxygen and the sheer exhilaration of flying into the unknown, quite literally, seemed capable of flipping a switch within pilots. Suddenly, they felt woozy and out of body. They described a disconnect to their own bodies as they went through the motions of flying. If these feelings continued, they were likely to experience a panic attack or even fall unconscious. Researchers believe the break-off effect could also happen to those individuals piloting future spacecraft. Fatal mistakes could be imminent. Given this data, it seemed logical that as NASA expanded its space program, its scientists should further dissect the break-off effect. They needed more information in order to know if they should be wary of it, and if they could train their astronauts to cope with it. According to Dr. Larry Young, an MIT astronautics professor and NASA advisor, it was a worthy concern that should have been addressed. Yet somehow by the mid-1970s, academic and military research into the break-off effect in space nearly stopped. Dr. Young said, once we started flying cosmonauts and astronauts, the problem disappeared. 
He claimed medical and aeronautics journals weren't talking about it anymore, and NASA still wasn't prepping astronauts with tools to cope with it. So what happened? Well, the break-off effect didn't disappear. Rather, people hoped it would disappear if they stopped discussing it and pointing out how worrisome it was. Thus was born the lie-to-fly culture, when astronauts and pilots stayed mum about experiencing the break-off effect so they wouldn't be grounded. For pilots who were allegedly the creme de la creme, acknowledging the break-off effect was emasculating. The long-standing trope that men are afraid to explore their weaknesses seemed, well, true. But more importantly, to talk about break-off publicly felt like career self-sabotage for an ambitious pilot. There was also a real possibility that further investigation could deem break-off to be a byproduct of another mental condition. If NASA or one of its psychologists decided that an astronaut was experiencing in-flight dissociation from depression or anxiety, the astronauts may be tagged as unfit to fly. This seemed too big a risk for astronauts who had trained doggedly for years, and Dr. Santi noted that most fit a type A mold, individuals who try to solve emotional issues with critical thinking. In taking this approach, subjects can deem psychological issues as weaknesses, simply an inner hurdle to surmount. She underscored, this is a group of individuals who are hardly motivated to voice psychological problems because of the consequences of doing so. They hate doctors in general and psychiatrists, psychologists in particular, because they cannot win in any interaction with them. At best, they can only break even. Meaning the path of talk therapy, an otherwise helpful antidote for depression and anxiety, can leave a type A astronaut feeling as if they're not making tangible progress. If they don't immediately see a feasible solution for a psychological concern, the mentality of it's just not worth trying kicks in. It's easier to pretend the problem doesn't exist. However, suppressing emotions in order to make it to takeoff can have a ripple effect, especially once an astronaut reaches space where the conditions are only more isolated and intense. Add in the lack of normality, and it's a cocktail for irregular behavior. Coming up, astronauts fear their fellow crew members' mental health might put the mission in jeopardy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. While we now believe physical fitness and mental health are irrefutably linked, for decades, NASA wasn't keen to probe the connection. Until academic research calling for psychological support gained traction in the late 1990s, NASA seemed content to believe that its astronauts were as unshakable as they claimed to be. 
And while the honor system might have served to get astronauts up into outer space, it did little in the way of ensuring they would remain calm once in space. For example, there's no ingrained 24-hour schedule once in orbit. A day is instead dictated by an endless to-do list. The human body, then, is forced to adjust to whatever pattern an astronaut can manage and whatever remains on their full work schedule. If astronauts were in a capsule that was easily temperature-controlled and had the same gravitational pull as on Earth, they might carry on as they would with any other busy day. However, space has a unique reality of its own. Life aboard the ISS, or International Space Station, isn't the milky twilight dream we see in movies. While Hollywood presents it as two hours of deep soul-searching, real astronauts have to settle in for months of strange accommodations. That includes living aboard a structure piped with industrial lighting emitting blue light wavelengths. Blue light is quietly perilous. It tells the body to wake up by suppressing the release of melatonin. This triggers a vicious cycle for an astronaut. Their bodies feel increasingly tired, and yet they are unable to sleep. The effects of sleep deprivation don't just make an astronaut sluggish. They can also impair decision-making. Take one example cited by an MIT report on space travel and mental health. It's said that in 1982, Russian cosmonaut Valentin Lebedev was showing signs of depression, which was likely tied to the fact that his crew noticed he also had a disorderly sleep schedule. His lack of desire to chat and mounting irritability were worrisome for two reasons. One, a depressed crew member is likely not functioning at peak capacity. Their fastidiousness and curiosity is in danger of waning. Secondly, a sleep-deprived astronaut could experience impaired decision-making. Critical tasks like piloting, spacewalks, or maintenance repairs could be jeopardized, which would also put fellow crewmates in harm's way. The MIT report even listed numerous examples over the past 30 years in which a crew member was likely under mental distress to the point of disconcerting behavior. Astronaut Henry Hartsfield was aboard NASA's Discovery and Columbia shuttles in the 1980s. He later recalled one mission saying, we had one payload specialist that became obsessed with the hatch. Said specialist seemed fixated on the shuttle's hatch, a door to release air. Hartsfield said that over the course of their mission, he and his fellow crew members became unsettled by this crew member's unrelenting fixation. They repeatedly wanted to check that the hatch had been locked. Another incident occurred in the 1980s with Taylor Wang, a payload specialist trained in cargo transportation for missions. After his experiment failed, Wang was argumentative with ground control and threatened not to come back to Earth. His contentious behavior was later chalked up to being under too much pressure to succeed, given the circumstances. All this evidence paints an eerie picture of tensions running high in space. 
Having a crew that is both mentally and physically sound, then, seems like the absolute minimum for a successful mission. However, unlike concrete tests like an echocardiogram or a CT scan, which immediately signal that something in the body is unfit to fly, psychological challenges remain much easier for an astronaut to hide. With them tucked away, it's one less box to check before takeoff, which, for better or worse, allows astronauts to run full speed towards the physical requirements of a mission. Since the inception of the space race, health was wealth. In fact, an astronaut's healthiness was the single most important factor for the selection of Project Mercury's astronauts. The thinking was that being in top physical condition meant a better chance of enduring possibly fatal situations. In essence, it was survival of the fittest, all mental health questions aside. Even today, we remain fascinated by an astronaut's regimens and routines in space. We want to know what it means to be a sublimely fit human, an athlete of science. However, despite the rigorous medical tests and physical training programs, some bodily changes are completely out of control once in orbit. For one astronaut, he felt something had changed dramatically while aboard the International Space Station. With a sinking feeling, Michael Barrett knew he had a problem he couldn't solve. From March through October of 2009, NASA astronaut Dr. Michael Barrett was aboard the ISS when he began noticing a problem he'd never experienced before. It was hard for him to read. Namely, he found it increasingly difficult to get through the manuals and checklists that were a part of his routine. And Barrett had some work to do that involved reading in Russian. No matter how hard he squinted, though, he felt he was straining his eyes. Barrett had a hunch he was under increased cranial pressure. That was especially problematic, as there's no way to measure brain fluid pressure once in flight. The two ways to test are invasive, skull drilling and spinal taps. Understandably, both weren't safe aboard the ISS. So Barrett pushed through the duration of the mission with one goal in mind. Upon landing, he asked for an additional test that wasn't a part of the routine post-flight checks. He wanted a spinal tap. Naturally, this was a serious request. The procedure is notoriously painful and involves puncturing one's lumbar vertebrae with a needle. Cerebrospinal fluid is collected, which can then be tested. But Dr. Barrett wasn't being overly dramatic. He was certified in both internal and aerospace medicine. There had to be some factor in space that had increased pressure on his brain and therefore shifted his vision. It was a valid theory. Three years before, astronaut John Phillips had been aboard the ISS on a six-month mission when he too noticed blurry vision. Back on Earth, Phillips had his post-flight physical. He learned that in just six months, his 2020 vision had tanked to 2100, meaning that what he used to be able to see from 100 feet away, he could now only see at 20. 
Through the course of an MRI and spinal tap, it was deduced that the entire construction of Philip's eyes had changed. The backs were flattened. There was evidence of choroidal folds, a stretch mark of the eye, if you will, and inflammation wrapping his optical nerves. This was exactly what Dr. Barrett anticipated he was experiencing. The totality of these symptoms now fall under something called VIP, or Visual Impairment Intracranial Pressure Syndrome. Scientists believe it occurs when one's bodily fluids float upwards towards the head without Earth's gravity to help drag them down. The skull therefore bears the brunt of more pressure than usual, which leads to a physical strain on the brain and eyes. As a result, entire organs can shift or remold in order to cope. Though no news outlet published the conclusive findings of his spinal tap, Dr. Barrett noted that his right eye seemed to be permanently reshaped. What's more, his vision never readjusted to his pre-flight status. Now more than ever, Barrett believes we need more ways to keep the intracranial pressure at bay. He even recommended doing ports for future astronauts to check their intracranial pressure. Similar to chemotherapy tubes that cancer patients use, these docks would allow an instrument to connect to a probe that was safely implanted inside an astronaut's skin before launch. However, even as precautionary procedures, these options are still quite invasive. And unfortunately for Barrett, his concern for ocular damage is just one amongst a sea of other contenders. In space, it's a buyer's market for life-altering medical conditions. The changes that occur in the human body once in orbit are by no means in stereo. They can appear and disappear nearly overnight. Some effects like high blood pressure or disrupted gastrointestinal patterns even go back to normal once the astronaut returns to Earth. However, some alterations occur so rapidly that they're impossible to ignore or avoid dealing with. Bone density, for instance, has long been a concern due to its tie to microgravity. Space appears to be a weightless wonderland, but the lack of gravity is actually an incredibly dangerous environment for the human skeletal system. When we think about bone density, we usually jump to older generations, picturing elderly women facing osteoporosis. However, density factors down to even the smallest bodily functions. Density is reliant on calcium, the mineral that bones share with a much smaller component, teeth. The vulnerability of teeth was apparent as far back as 1978, following a flight by Russian cosmonaut Yuri Romanenko. During his nearly three-month stint aboard the Russian spacecraft Salyut 6, Romanenko began to feel a throbbing pain in his tooth. As the voyage continued, the toothache grew more severe, to the point that he was on constant painkillers, telling his crew back on Earth that he needed something more to stop the triggering jolts. The ground unit allegedly downplayed Romanenko's pain, telling him to take a mouthwash and keep warm. To be fair, this was likely all they could do. The Soviets hadn't factored in any type of emergency plan for dental problems. Romanenko touched down safely to Earth, but the space program hadn't heard the last about his tooth. 
In the months that followed, he was dogged in speaking out about his experience, underscoring that debilitating dental emergencies could and would continue to happen in space. He predicted correctly. Though it's unclear from the report what condition Romanenko's teeth were in before his mission, even astronauts with pristine oral health are vulnerable to this same sort of suffering. A 2001 report from the U.S. Institute of Medicine claimed, good teeth and a history of preventive care cannot guarantee that no cavities will develop in anyone over the course of a three-year mission. Astronauts are unable to control things like changes in mouth bacteria, which can hasten gum disease. Combine this with the detrimental effects of eating dehydrated food for nearly a year, if not more, and the door swings open for debilitating problems. So it begs the question, can cavities be filled in microgravity? Tentatively, yes. But few souls are keen to move forward with any type of invasive drilling like we use on Earth to fill tooth decay. Modern dental drills require turbines and small motors, which are cumbersome. Not to mention, if a drill slips while operating on a patient, there's a looming peril for serious oral surgery. Should they be necessary, there are safer options for dental maintenance in space. It's crucial to keep in mind that these solutions are time-intensive. Scraping out a decayed tooth and filling it by hand can take hours. When juggling a full schedule of research, repairs, and mission tasks, time is money. To excavate a cavity, something we consider annoying but menial on Earth, means sacrificing attention towards other equally important routines. Like, say, exercise. Coming up, astronauts train rigorously, but no amount of conditioning can protect them from the consequences of radiation. Now back to the story. In their stories of what lies in the great beyond, astronauts don't often talk enthusiastically about the frightening changes that occur in their own bodies. Amongst them are worsened eyesight, shaky balance, and downright painful dental decay. As some of these problems are results of the physical atrophy that occurs without gravity, the solution appears to be motion. That's right. Spending months in gravitational bliss doesn't mean nixing the gym routine. In fact, an astronaut likely triples the amount of time that a very active American spends exercising. Aboard the International Space Station, crew members allocate up to two and a half hours per day to exercise regimens. But why is sweating it out in space so critical? Two words, bone density. According to the Canadian Space Agency, in the microgravity environment of space, astronauts lose on average 1% to 2% of their bone mineral density every month. Every month? Compare that to a U.S. World Report stating that women in the early stages of menopause lose from 2 to 7% of their bone density per year. To give a more clear example, that means an astronaut on a six-month mission could lose as much as 12% bone density, while a menopausal woman would lose 1% over the same time period. This number was confirmed by a 2009 survey of those aboard the ISS. It revealed that 
13 space station astronauts found that their bone strength dipped by at least 14% on the average during their half-year stays aboard the orbiting laboratory. On the more severe end of the spectrum, three of the 13 astronauts were found to have lost nearly 30% of their bone strength during those six months. Needless to say, maintaining as much bone structure as possible is serious business. However, replicating the weight-bearing measures that keep bones strong on Earth isn't as easy in space. Astronauts don't have the luxury to run freely, nor can they just pop a few calcium pills and hope for the best. So, they have to try to recreate some of the gravitational load from Earth by using resistance straps to tether themselves to treadmills. It's somewhat effective, but by no means a replacement for the type of exercise exerted on bones while back home. And when astronauts do return to Earth, they must be even more careful. Their bones are so fragile that they need both time and therapy to readjust. Given the numerous record of astronauts wobbling and falling as they walk away from their landed shuttle pods, they aren't even allowed to drive until at least 21 days after landing. This interim is all about reacclimating, very gently. The pelvis, the spine, and femurs are especially prone to fractures. In other words, parts of the body affected by even simple movement. Try standing up from a chair gingerly for days at a time. It's an incredible burden to be conscientious of. After returning from a voyage, weeks, or more realistically months, of physical therapy can lie ahead for astronauts. This can start with simple tasks, like bathing while sitting in a tub, rather than standing in the shower. They may also wear pressurized suits under normal clothing to keep blood and oxygen moving back towards their brain and neck. While the minutiae of this protocol may sound daunting, it's a breeze in comparison to the alternatives. If bones are not gradually introduced to bearing their weight back on Earth, the effects can be destructive. A possible hip fracture or spinal fracture could occur, meaning surgery followed by hospitalization, not to mention even more physical therapy to follow while the injury heals. Such consequences on the more drastic end of the spectrum were outlined by a recent experiment in 2015. NASA wanted to perform an in-depth experiment about the long-term effects of space on the human body. To do this, they created their most controlled study yet. The agency determined the best way to do so would be to use a pair of male identical twins, one as the control and the other as the variable, to study how the body adapts or changes in space. The variable twin would be sent into orbit aboard the ISS, while the other remained going about his daily life on Earth. The thought was that since the men are genetically uniform, changes could be seen as plainly as possible, meaning that anything happening to the variable twin would likely be a direct or indirect result of spaceflight. Scott Kelly, a 50-year-old retired astronaut from New Jersey who'd served missions aboard the Discovery Shuttle and ISS, was the variable. Beginning in 2015, he lived aboard the International Space Station for a year, while his twin brother Mark remained earthbound. Both carried out a series of physical, medical, and psychological tests. 
Throughout the months, an astounding total of 10 research teams from across the nation documented the psychological, molecular, and cognitive changes happening to Scott in space. One particularly strange effect occurred in Scott's telomeres, or coded genetic instructions within each DNA strand. They lengthened in space. This was odd, considering that growing older typically shortens these strands, not the opposite. Besides which, stress or radiation, two things nearly synonymous with outer space, can even shorten or weaken telomeres even further. So why were they lengthening? Was Scott Kelly getting younger? This was unlikely. In fact, upon further examination, some scientists believe the telomeres Scott did have might actually not have grown. Instead, they proposed that his body may have instead just regenerated completely new stem cells with longer telomeres. There's no clear-cut answer as to why Scott's body reacted this way. One feasible possibility, though, was that his cells were shifting into overdrive to repair the extensive damage he experienced. While on the ISS, Scott was receiving 24 times the normal amount of radiation that his twin Mark experienced by being on Earth. To make matters more confusing, once the mission was completed and Scott returned to Earth, his team of scientists found that the lengthened telomeres had shrunk back to their original size. Some even continued to shrivel shorter. It was baffling. Though the human body often experiences major reacclimation changes around 48 hours after landing, Six months after Scott's return, nearly 8% of his genes were still behaving abnormally. A modest, though hardly insignificant amount in his overall gene expression, or epigenetics. This abnormality, combined with Scott's decreased mental performance on cognitive tests, comprised mounting evidence that he was worse off both mentally and genetically after his time in space. He certainly didn't return from the mission in better physical health. One of the scientists dissecting the telomere research, Dr. Susan Bailey, thought Scott's decreased cognition could be an indirect result of general malaise after spaceflight. Scott himself confirmed that he hadn't been sleeping well. It felt like fighting through quicksand to get adequate rest, an observation that seemed to shore up Dr. Bailey's point. Though the long-term results on Scott's immune system are still being monitored and compared to his twin, Mark, his genetic mutations are likely top of mind for the research team. If they behave like most mutations tend to, there's a likelihood that the mutated cells will continue to adapt and divide. As physicians and scientists well know, the snowball effect of such mutations often leads to cancer. It's critical, then, to take NASA's later statement with a grain of salt. In response to Scott Kelly's mission, it said, Given that the majority of the biological and human health variables remain stable or return to baseline, these data suggest that human health can be mostly sustained over this duration of spaceflight. Mostly sustained. This smacks of the agency's ingrained habits of dancing around the gritty realities of a trip to space. For now, Scott Kelly seems healthy and is dealing with slightly uncomfortable inconveniences. His overall risk appears minimal. However, the unknown of his aforementioned genetic mutation 
and its likelihood to devolve looms in the distance. Meanwhile, radiation, the main culprit of genetic mutation, remains an unchangeable factor in spaceflight. We take the atmosphere for granted, but it does a great deal in terms of mitigating the amount of harmful exposure we could otherwise receive. Launch the human body into space, away from Earth's powerful magnetic field, and all that changes. Even NASA could attest to this with a 2017 article aptly titled, Space Radiation is Risky Business for the Human Body. Quite the problem for an agency who's made its business sending humans to space. NASA's research was harrowing. It detailed that the entire body is subject to harmful radiation once in space. After radiation strikes a cell's DNA, there's a good chance the cell's ability to renew itself will be impaired, giving rise to a less-than-perfect replacement. Because of this, a gene that heals incorrectly can mutate, and too many mutations can accumulate into cancerous cells. This seems ominous, weighed alongside yet another NASA study that explained how space radiation is measured in doses called millisievert, MSV. It laid out that one MSV of ionizing radiation is equivalent to about three chest X-rays. For astronauts that can be exposed to a range of anywhere from 50 to 2,000 MSV per voyage, this would be like having 150 to 6,000 chest X-rays. While there is more research in progress to see if some radiation effects can be repaired by aspirin, it's too early to provide a conclusive solution. So as astronauts attempt to stay longer in space aboard the ISS, or even probe deeper into the galaxy, there's a serious question of whether flying blind with prolonged radiation exposure is worth it. If there was a cure for stopping cell mutation and therefore mitigating the possibility of developing cancer, then perhaps the answer would be yes. Astronauts might be more willing to accept that, as a result of a mission, they might develop cancerous mutations, but at least treatment would be available. Unfortunately, science is still far from that, and to go into space simply means to willingly launch one's body into a pressure cooker of unknowns. We know that blood clots, impaired optic nerves, bone loss, and depression hang in the balance. We just don't know to what extent. Yet, even with threats of declining health on the horizon, the door is still open for each astronaut to go where few have gone before. It's ultimately a risk these explorers choose for themselves, knowing that if they don't do it, someone else will. Space is still the most exciting frontier, and those who don't jump aboard, whether safe or not, fear they'll be left behind. Join us next week as we examine the catastrophic failures of Apollo 1, the Challenger, and Columbia missions to understand just exactly what went wrong. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify. 
Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Baden, and Travis Clark. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Mackenzie Moore, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner. <laughs>